0: Neil Before Blog presents Neil
1: Before Pod.
2: Hello, and welcome to Neil Before Pod interviews. I'm your host Craig, and I recently had the pleasure of talking to Kevin and Dan Hageman, executive producers of the animated Star Trek show Star Trek Prodigy. I got to pick their brains about playing in the Star Trek sandbox, honoring a legacy character, writing Star Trek, and so much more. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined on Neil Before Pod with Kevin and Dan Hageman, the runners of Star Trek Prodigy. Hi, guys. How's it going? Hey, we're we're so
0: happy to be here. We're we're great.
1: Woo! Yes, I'm
0: glad to have yous on.
1: That was Dan yipping and hollering, yeah. and this is Kevin. Just so people can get used to our silky voices, this is Kevin.
0: I'm the one that sounds like he just got over COVID, which is true.
2: Okay, <laughs> I had that <laughs> earlier in the year, which was uh-huh. not fun. Around about the same time Morbius came out, so maybe I was saved.
1: Maybe it was Morbius who gave you COVID. I don't know. Maybe.
2: I wouldn't put it past him. (laughs) First question, easy one. You run a Star Trek show, so what's your history with Star Trek? What's your beginnings with the franchise?
0: I don't think we ever felt like our life story would intersect with a Star Trek show. We were big fans of most of all entertainment. I mean, in terms of Star Trek, Kevin's about three years older than I and I think our earliest memory was Wrath of Khan. And that was the movie that just felt like the other Star Wars, but it felt like the smart Star Wars. I think we were maybe like six and nine around then. But yeah, that was the introduction to Star Trek. And ever since then, we've been picking up bibs and bobs and little bits of Next Generation, a little bit of Voyager. And then when Alex Kurtzman asked us if we were interested in doing a Star Trek show, our first reaction was no. We didn't feel like we were blessed enough to be able to do a Star Trek show. It it scared us.
1: And we knew how hard the fans are. And we're like, this is a very tiny target to hit.
0: Yeah. On the way out of that meeting, after we said no, we were walking to the car and we're like, well, if we were going to do a show, what would we do? And we really liked the idea of kids who didn't know anything about the Federation. It kind of was like a security blanket for us. And then when we had that idea, we knew we needed a mentor. And right off the bat, we knew it had to be Janeway. And then after that, we talked to Aaron Walkie and we surrounded ourselves with people who do feel like bona bonafide spurts. And that's the beginning of Star Trek
1: Prodigy.
2: So there was no point where it was ever considered to have any other legacy mentor character. It was always Janeway.
1: Always Janeway, from the very, very beginning. And going back to what Dan was saying, The Wrath of Khan, I think you'll see that DNA all over Prodigy. Because we grew up with the spectacle of Star Trek on the big screen. And Wrath of Khan was probably one of the most emotional chapters in Star Trek. And so that really cemented i think in our minds of what we love about star trek and not just having the smarts and the fantastical but also the heart so you'll see that all over prodigy
0: the boldness of killing off one of your main characters not one but the main character spock that was massive that felt like it could never be done as writers that's really influenced us to always take big big swings because we feel like People like Disney, when you work on the show for Disney, you're not allowed to do that stuff. Spoiler alert, it took Marvel like 20 movies to kill off Iron Man. We probably would have killed him off around <laughs> movie three, but that would have been our yeah
2: <laughs> Taking the big swings is an interesting thing because obviously in this show, you do kill off one of the main characters through Hollow Janeway. It's a slight cheat because you've got the real one in reserve almost, but it doesn't diminish the fact that your Hollow Janeway is not there anymore because that character became as integral to the show as anyone else so your breath of can influence that seems to definitely be evident throughout
0: it's that bittersweet and i think there's no greater ending than bittersweet something that makes you feel but then you feel like there's greener pastures on the other side it felt like a loss that was inevitable that needed to happen.
1: You have to remind yourself also that we've already written another 20 episodes of a season two that does continue a lot of these storylines. And so standing where we are right now, looking back over the 40, it's very exciting. We feel really good. And where you guys are at, it's almost at a midpoint of one gigantic saga.
2: That's what I find interesting about it is the season one story isn't completely resolved by the end. You still have Chakotay to deal with. You still have the Volnika first contact situation to deal with. It does feel like there's a lot to go with, but also it feels like there's an ending in terms of where the characters needed to be.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. We really needed and wanted an ending that felt satisfying, but also there's so much great stuff still in there that we didn't want to rush it. We didn't want to all of a sudden just have Chakotay pop in and that's that. We want to make sure everything is earned. And it it makes you guys feel like once you get these characters through that story, ah, finally, Jakote, or finally this or that, we really pay off those grand stories.
0: I think it was really important too to make sure that we were focusing on the kids. Yes, there's legacy players, but if that whole show was about paying off legacy characters, that would be just fan service. It's like, here's season one and here's Voyager. And to us, it was speckling in those legacy characters in the story of our main characters. So making sure that they are the engine of everything that happens.
2: Yeah. Speaking as a fan of a lot of things, um, becoming quite resistant to fan service pandering where people are just thrown in for the sake of throwing them in rather than them making sense. So at no point during the season of Prodigy did I ever feel like Jane Way was overpowering the narrative. It was always about the young characters. So that is a real testament to the focus of the show that everything is focused on those young characters.
1: Yeah, we're so happy that our intent was always to hopefully grab kids, but also the adult Trek fans to have adult Trek fans go, oh, wow, this is the show we never knew we wanted. And we're so happy to see that adult fans are responding to it and enjoying it just as well as the kids.
2: Yeah, I've spoken to a number of writers have written for young skewing kids shows, and they always say the same thing. They always say don't insult your audience, don't talk down to your young audience because they'll run away, they'll stop watching if you talk down to them. Was that very much your philosophy going into this?
0: It's not bit about talking down, it's just being emotionally connected to your characters as writers and making sure the stakes feel real. I think that's where I think some kid entertainment, again, it feels like you've got executives going, whoa, 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 we can't show that to kids because that might scare them. And you're like, well, why not? Kids can be scared. It's human emotion. We're not cutting off arms with phasers and stuff like that. But we do turn a cop mad with the Medusan. There's no gore there. I wouldn't say we're even trying to push it. We're just trying to be present with our characters and the mountains that they need to climb.
2: And you had a pretty scary Borg episode as well.
1: Yes. I'm proud of a lot of our writers. We come from the live action world. We do live action writing just as much as animations. And we brought a lot of live action writers on our writing staff. It's a very difficult tone to write, to be able to write for adults and kids. There's writers who can do children's entertainment or younger skewed stuff. I honestly think it's probably a little bit easier to write. Or I think just writing a horror movie or just something straight for an adult, but to try to get a wider audience and to keep them all interested and keep them all caring and keep them all surprised and stuff, it's hard.
0: Well, like serialized storytelling, I think serializing things is very difficult. And also trying to create a cinematic storytelling canvas. I feel like there's a lot of shows that feel disposable and they feel very easy of like, oh, it's a template. Just follow the template. They do this, they do that, they do this. There's a twist and then an ending. And we can't do that. There is no template. We have to start from scratch, blank page, and going. okay, we've got 21 and a half minutes. How do we fill this thing, and how do we make this thing awesome?
2: I think the beauty of Star Trek as well is, certainly when it was in its heyday in the 90s, early 2000s, it was very much a family show. It was sort of designed that anybody could watch it, so I imagine that was slightly easier to translate to animation for younger viewers, because it was kind of already there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, like with phasers and aliens and sci-fi, it really didn't have too much that was over the line. Although Star Trek has found ways to go over the line. We were just talking to another podcast about the naked now. And just certain episodes where it feels like it's overly sexualized at times. And I think that was the Gene Roddenberry era coming through.
1: And I think for this show, there is a lot to lean on the history of Star Trek. There's so much already built in this world and how Starfleet works. And so that's reassuring and also scary because you don't want to mess it up. But... The challenge of balancing that along with bringing in that fresh tone and characters that are not distinguished, not Starfleet, they don't know anything. That really was a really fun ingredient that we got to throw into the recipe that suddenly took A lot of the classic structure and conventions you see in Star Trek, spin it on its head and do some fun new stuff, which is a delight, I think, for all of us.
0: And oftentimes, in terms of those deep pulls, we would be inspired by something, and either someone in the room or a Star Trek consultant, early on when it was just Kevin and I, we knew Rock Talk would be this big rock monster that was a little girl, and it was David Mack who goes, hey, you should check out the Bracar. It's from the books, and then we looked it up. We're like, this is fantastic. I think the only thing we struggled with, and I think the brakar had like gravity belts on, and I'm like, I don't know if we gotta introduce a gravity belt, or we wanted some swagger Han Solo-ish character, and it was Shauna Benson who just loved this episode, Outrageous Okana. And then we'd watch it at lunchtime and we're like, This is perfect.
2: Yeah, I did have a question about that one because that's quite a deep-cut reference to bring back that character. He was actually in a episode of Lower Decks, but he didn't have any speaking lines. And then you bring him in with speaking lines with his original actor as well. So that was a good win there.
1: Yeah, we talked to Mike. I don't know how many moons ago. Can't remember if he came to us first. We
0: already had Okada. And he said he was going to be a DJ, and we said just put an eye patch on him. The eye patch was Billy's idea.
1: Billy Campbell. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he was the one who was like, "I want to put some age. I want to put a little gut on him. Gray him up. from an eye patch."
1: Well, it's been.
2: 20-odd years or something yeah. since he last appeared. So. Uh,
1: yeah, living an outrageous lifestyle.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting that a few things had changed, but really not much had changed. He's still swindling his way through the universe.
1: Yeah. There was a
0: lot of debate. Should he come into the cavalry in episode 19? Should he come back? I think we decided he was too far away in the galaxy. And I don't know if that would really go with what he would do.
2: I also quite like the fact that the ending of his story was that he was really self serving as, in, as soon as things got really ran away, as soon as he seemed like he would have to do something, he ran away because that's just not his style.
1: And that's where we started before we even knew it was going to be his character. We wanted someone with swagger to come on board, the protostar, who's going to threaten Dow in Dao's position and force Dow to look inward. And once Shauna brought up Okana and we really looked into him, he was a perfect mirror to Dow.
0: What Dao used to be.
1: Yeah, here is who Dao will become if Dao continues a lifestyle of just being selfish.
0: I think Dao hates him so much because you hate
1: who you relate to. There's a lot of Dao. You see some of yourself.
0: Definitely. You've already mentioned
2: about Rock and the decision to include that species. What went into bringing the other characters in and building them up? What sort of thought process
0: went in? Medusa was one of the very first ideas... I believe that we had. When you're talking about Star Trek aliens, I love that they literally melt your mind, really get you thinking. And I think the Medusa and just that idea of a non-corporeal entity is something I think is really interesting to introduce to kids. That would blow my brain if I was six years old trying to understand what that meant.
1: I feel like this podcast would be good for young aspiring writers because I feel like we're giving some of our tips and tricks and what we do. And for the characters, for the crew, our starting point was these characters are not going to be from Starfleet. They know nothing of it and they're going to find the ship. And one day they're going to be officers. That's the goal. Someday they will be officers and they'll have their specific station. And so our starting point was, well, who would be the worst of the worst? Who would be the worst engineer that you could have on your ship? And it would be an engineer who just disagrees. Who hits things. Who hits things, who's rough, and who never listens to the captain or always argues. Yeah, always argues. And so, boom, we started to settle in on a Telluride. With Zero, at first, Zero was sort of going to be our pilot. And we're like, who would make the worst pilot? Someone who can't even control their fingers and don't know how to hit their buttons well. And so, Zero was this wonderful Medusin character who is just janky and his arm's falling off and he doesn't know what he's doing.
0: But also, we were thinking about, this is going to sound super greedy, whatever it is, but but this is just the kids and us. We're looking at going down the toy aisle. How are they all different? We wanted to make sure they're all different sizes. Silhouettes of each character. We got a short Tillerite. We have a large brick car. We have a floating, looks like a robot. They need to look like something you could buy in in a McDonald's Happy Meal.
1: Yeah. So you look at Dow. Dow would be our captain. Well, who would be the worst captain in the world? The captain who doesn't give a crap about anyone except for himself. With Wade, we've learned that for
0: whatever reason, girl toys don't sell well. I think Star Wars Ray was a big thing.
1: Yeah. We had heard a story that when they first started to make the Star Wars toys for the new movies, they never made a Ray character. We did this for Ninjago where Lego kind of pushed back on
0: us, creating this female character, Nia, who was one of the main core. And they're like, well, we don't want to create a girl ninja because what boy's going to want a girl ninja? We're like, okay, then we're going to give Nia the coolest weapons. <laughs> we did the exact same thing with Gwen. We're like, she's going to have the coolest weapon. And we'll start from
1: there.
2: Yeah. And it's the standard sort of animation thing of characters that you can draw a basic approximation off in like two minutes as well just the shapes
1: yeah and we're animated we don't have to have the prosthetics on someone's forehead we don't need to have just humanoid aliens we're allowed the privilege to push it and we had so much fun doing that
2: and the thing i loved about it is you can see the clear starting point and the clear ending point and you tackle a lot of really complicated issues issues of identity issues of family found families all that stuff it's all really complex stuff and that is in keeping with the finest traditions of Star Trek as a franchise, just approaching these issues and framing them in such a way that it makes it palatable for audiences, I suppose. I think that's something you did really well with everybody.
0: I think it was very organic. I think we had a great writer's room and we had a lot of fun. I think we all felt lucky. I don't know if anyone felt like they were good enough to actually be in a Star Trek writer's room and all of a sudden we get to do a Star Trek show. And we're like, oh my God, this is great. And so here we go. It's like giving the little kids at the table the power.
1: There's the fun, but also the pressure that we all know, we don't want to screw this up. We never took it lightly. We knew the purpose of this show was to invite a new generation of young fans into Star Trek.
0: But the pressure never felt like work though.
1: No, it was a total
0: joy. The pressure was basically like, how do we have as much fun as we possibly can? How do we make this a joyful show?
1: But it was never good enough, right? We were always working on it. We were always striving to just milk everything, whether it was the writing or the animation or the music or the animatic boards, the designs. It was just such a joy to work on. But everyone on our team was just trying to always reach for excellence. But it was interesting because there was
0: always this same cross to bear. Of every time we'd bring in a new artist, we'd have to... I wouldn't say teach them, but the learning process of this isn't some little kid Nickelodeon show or the writers or NAMI or the voice artists. We'd come in and they would expect one thing. They would expect, oh, this is like a little Kirk, little Spock show. And we bring in this amazing artwork and go, no, we have a full orchestra. We have a 50 piece orchestra. We want to make this thing so lush that it blurs that line. This should look like a movie, a week-to-week movie that just keeps unfolding.
1: And it was a learning curve at the very beginning. Someone must have the very first animatic of our pilot because we had a lot of board artists who came from Nickelodeon, who came from like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Nickelodeon action shows. And so on our pilot, they find the ship and all this stuff. And when they battle, they're like, what? And they're like freeze framing, fly into the air, and all this stuff. Some of that is
0: still even in the pilot because there wasn't enough time to get everything exactly as we wanted it. There was a real kind of a rush job on the pilot. But yeah, originally that Protostar was zip-zapping through the mines. It was going so fast. And Kevin and I had to stop and going, I'm okay with having this ship going five miles an hour, and you can still make adventure on a five mile an hour ship slowly going through the
1: mines. Yeah, it was cartoon adventure, which works, which is fine. But we knew that's not what this show needs. It needs a reality. It needs science behind it It needs to be grounded. So instead of that protostar zipping and flying and twirling like a cartoon plaything through the caverns of Charles Lamora, we're like, No, it's gonna go like five miles an hour. (laughs) It's gonna be slow. And as you see, it's wonderfully tense. It's wonderfully exciting going slow through it because you believe it when they're scratching the sides of the cavern and they're trying to fly this thing because they don't know how to fly it.
2: Yeah, and then your first few episodes are essentially Hollow Janeway teaching the kids how to do Star Trek stuff. Every episode is, here's a standard star trek situation and we're going to teach you how to do it that's a really good entry point for young viewers it's, here's what this franchise is all about step by step
0: yeah it was a lot of fun they kind of have like the greatest hits we felt like after the pilot everyone's going to say they don't know how to fly a starship so episode three is they sort of learn how to fly a starship then it's the first away mission which is a two-parter because we knew it's going to be expensive going down to one planet to build all that in animation would be very expensive and so we were always thinking with our producer's at. Okay, so this will be a two-part episode on Murder Planet. Then it was Kobayashi after that, which was a fantastic one. And that was the first time I was like, okay, now we know who these characters are. The crew is all together. Now let's bring Spock into it.
2: That must have been fun trying to get someone to dig up all those audio clips to fill in the gaps of speech.
1: That was all Aaron Walkie. He's the architect of it. We did have people... Literally physically going into the archives and pulling old reels and stuff like that. And that was a big creative choice because a lot of these recordings are not very clear and we don't have the time or the budget to clean them up. And so we either go with it or do you want to go with the sound alike? And we felt like, no. You can't just get someone from your support staff to go
0: do these errands because they don't know Star Trek. Some of them are like, I've never seen Star Trek. You're like, we got to pull clips. You're like, well, what clips are they going to pull? So Walkie's like,
1: I'll do it. I know. How many episodes are there with Spock? I don't know what it is, but it's astronomical <laughs> between the movies and shows. Well, wasn't it just TOS, it was the movie. Not just TOS, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: And you can sort of get away with that with the holodeck anyway, if everything's not 100% clear, because it's a holiday.
1: Yes. Well, we just hope that people can look past it and just enjoy that you're hearing Nimoy there. It was just magical for us. We had
0: a cut scene, too. It was too long. We had a great scene in Kobayashi. It's a very quick cut when Spock says, oh, we can transport over to the Klingon ship. And originally it was... They walk out of the bridge and go through the corridors to get to the transporter thing. And the whole time, Dal is like, this is still the holodeck? How are we walking
1: through a ship? Yeah, you're walking through the Enterprise. It really helps sell the grandiose nature of the holodeck. Magic of the holodeck, yeah. we, We didn't have the time or the money.
2: And in terms of the shared universe aspect of Star Trek, is there a lot of comparing notes between the different production staff of the different shows that are running all concurrently?
0: There is on the macro level, we'll get together every time someone's got a new season, they'll say, hey, this is what we're doing in Discovery, or this is what we're doing in Picard. And you'll kind of walk it out, and you'll be like, we have a sound alien. Someone says, oh, we also have a sound alien. And we'll kind of compare notes and say, well, this feels different enough. But sometimes there's things that we don't talk about that happen, like for Mind Walk with the body switch. That's something that we had written probably three years ago. And for Stock and Muck, I don't know if they knew what we were doing. So it just so happened that Strange New Worlds and us had a body switch. I don't think it it takes away from anything.
2: No, definitely not. It's more just the kind of big swing stuff that you might need to worry about in a way.
0: Yeah, I remember Kobayashi came out at the same time when Discovery had an episode called something Kobayashi. Two Kobayashi episodes back to back.
2: And I would say the events of the finale of the season are... Pretty monumental in terms of the history of the Star Trek universe. We'd be one of those things that's referred to as this devastating event. It's almost on the level of Wolf 359 in terms of the level of destruction that goes on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You write it into the script, you just go, there's a fleet. I think we had a couple ships that we said that were in the fleet, but then when they actually have to make the fleet and they're showing, I don't think the Defiant was ever written into it. But all of a sudden, they're like, we're going to put the divine into it.
1: I think Patrick, one of our producers, is in charge of the animation. He's a huge Czech fan, and he loves the ships. He has all the Eagle Moss. Is it the Eagle Moss? All the little tiny ships. Yeah, in his office. Yeah, so I think he had a little field day of getting all of his favorite ships in there.
2: <laughs> and then you have this huge, devastating event where lots of ships are heavily damaged and need to be repaired.
0: Yeah, I know people talk yes. about, they go, there must have been a mass amount of death, but I'm like, there's no death on screen. No. They talk about transporting people over to ships. So yeah. In our minds, there weren't any. Death. They did it without any lives being lost.
2: Do you have it in your minds who was on the Defiant when it was there? I know you said it wasn't written in initially, <laughs> but uh, it's a
0: burning question. No, no, we have no idea. I'm not sure. No. Even answer that. <laughs> I don't want to spoil it for anyone doing any other Star Trek stories later.
2: Yeah, if they want to reference it in some way. And I think the Enterprise-E is there. Someone caught that with a screen grab.
1: I don't think we knew that either. There's only so much you can do, right? You're building out this universe. You try to have the greatest attention to detail. But then as a showrunner, you're wearing a lot of hats and you're trying to make sure that the music is right or it's on time. and. We don't have the time to look at every ship and go, okay, what's the story behind each ship and who's, you know, who's captain? Just can't. I think we would go mad.
2: (laughs) That's fair enough. It's something for us fans to speculate about until the question might get answered one day.
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) Which is fair enough for me. I do have to ask about the episode All the World's a Stage. That might have been my favorite of the season, and I think that... It does some really interesting stuff because fandom is a really bizarre place right now. I'm sure you've seen with Star Wars and DC and everything where if people are perceived to put a foot wrong, they get attacked on the internet and there's gatekeeping around who can consider themselves to be a real fan and things like that. And I thought that episode was very much about that. It's very much about people that came to appreciate Starfleet through unconventional means. And it's about whether they count as real fans of Star Trek, really. I don't know if that was a deliberate choice when that episode was made, but that was something I really read into.
0: I will be honest. This was a great episode written by Aaron Walkie. It was not a deliberate choice. I think this is what we call a happy accident. Because to us, it wasn't so much about fandom. And by the way, I just want to mention Star Trek fandom. I love Star Trek fandom. There is some toxic fandom in Star Trek, but it's not very big. It feels like they're getting shouted down, which I like. But in terms of All the world of Stage, it was more or less a reflection of who our characters are and how they feel like they're Starfleet. So in essence, is our crew the ultimate cosplayers? They're dressing up as Starfleet, pretending to do these things. Are they really Starfleet? And it just so happened the fans have kind of piggybacked that in a beautiful way, and it, it's like a, a layer of the onion.
1: That episode was also inspired by Galaxy Quest and all of us loving that. Film and what they did, spinning ideas off of Star Trek, and also that episode was inspired. I remember by, for me, it was Miri, an episode in TOS. I love Miri because I love those stories where those characters or heroes beam down, and then suddenly they're introduced to some crazy culture that is baffling, and you can't go back to the ship. Yeah, and it's a mystery. Spock starting to get ill, and he can't go back up to the ship. That was Bones. Was Bones getting sick? Yeah, that was Bones. I thought Spock was getting sick, and Miri. I don't know that's been a while. Anyways, that episode was really just again inspired our greatest hits. The initial idea was Walt Keys, but we wanted this episode to to embody some of those classic Trek episodes. I
0: think it was Deandra too. I think Walt Keys given credit to Deandra. Deandra was the one of like, what if there was a place that had all these
1: old Captain Logs, and they created a the whole culture. It was also inspired by Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome when he meets the kids, and yeah, yeah. they have this weird twisted society based off of some pilot who saved them walker captain walker yeah yeah they make the sound in the audience like (laughs) yeah that was definitely.
2: and then it ends up being about the validity of being into something being associated with something and how you you can define that yourself i think it was a really great thing especially to give to young fans of the franchise that are just getting into it for the first time it's The fact that you calling yourself a fan of this, new or not, makes you as valid as someone that's been watching it since the 60s.
1: Yeah, that's great. I love that. And also for us, that episode, story-wise, it was important, not just conceptual. Like that concept fit really nicely right there because this was a wonderful message of Dal and the kids are feeling like imposters. They're dressing up like Starfleet, trying to be Starfleet, but they're not really Starfleet. They're just playing it. Or pretend and that's what they need a culture that's doing the same thing. But I think it's
0: interesting. You're gonna have adult Trek fans who are gonna like Kobayashi. They're gonna like all the worlds of stage. I think kids will gravitate to Mind Walk or Ghost the Machine.
1: Dan, I think that too, but then I can't remember if it was my nine year old or my eleven year old. I think it's my eleven year old daughter. She loves all the worlds that's one of her favorite episodes. And I'm like, wow, I'm surprised. I
0: think the one thing we could all agree is the time amok is the one we could all love.
2: Yeah, that's a good crash course in relativistic physics, isn't it, for young fans?
1: Well, we had to have the fun, timey-wimey Star Trek episode. It's the greatest hit. You can boil down each of these episodes and go, oh yeah, the Prodigy team is circling this classic Trek episode trope. Yeah.
2: And then you have a complicated background time travel plot with alternate futures and all this
0: stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: That just kind of organically happened.
1: Well, organically fell into, yeah. So now we have season two to help unravel that hot <laughs> mess. I think what was great, though, is we had
0: Dr. Erin McDonald. She's drawn so many charts and graphs showing. And even in the room, we're like, this is the year that Protostar was built. This is the year that Chakotay left. This is the year that it landed Solemn. This is the year it went back to Tars Lamora. It's worked out. It's worked out. We're not making it up.
2: It's like the chalkboard in Back to the Future with the lines on it.
0: Yes. And then season two gets even crazier season two i was like does this make sense dr aaron she's like give me a week to figure it out (laughs) and she's like it makes sense
2: and she gave her a cameo in the final episode as well giving rock her
0: field yeah yeah we love dr aaron it was great when we were first introduced we brought her into the office she had no idea what her show was about she had no idea that jane way was the mentor of the show and she came in and she's this tatted up astrophysicist, and she had this big Voyager on her arm. And when we saw she had Voyager <laughs> on
1: her arm, we were like, Oh my gosh. We're like, Oh, do you know, Aaron? Do you know who's on our show? And she's like, No, and she freaked.
0: She's like, Is it really Kate? I'm like, It's really Kate.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and how much involvement did Kate Mulgrew have in the discussions around what her character would be like or her characters? Because obviously she's creating a new one in the whole graphic one, which is familiar enough. And then you've got Her older self, five years after Voyager, was she involved in discussing where her character would be at that point?
0: Yeah. In the booth, we talk about it. How do we differentiate them? What would hologram Janeway sound like compared to Admiral Janeway? And then we also talk to her a great deal. What do you think her relationship with Chakotay?
1: We picked her brain a lot about that because she's the closest to the character, more so than us. But she loves what we've written for her very rarely. But there are times where she will like, oh, I think Janeway would say this that way, or she wouldn't use a pronoun here or whatever. So she's wonderful at just knowing exactly that character and what would come out of her mouth.
2: Love that the show acknowledges her flaws as well. You get the scene where she's ready to rush into the neutral zone and risk war. And then Tysus says, no, you're acting emotionally. You need to slow down. So she's sort of surrounding herself with people Mm -hmm. who question her, which shows that she's maybe understanding where She can cross the line sometimes. I really like that. And it's a really good showcase of a legacy character.
0: There was a cut scene that, again, we didn't have time for. When we found out we got David Diggs to play Tysus, we're like, oh my god, this is amazing. First off, when you're casting a show, you never know who you can get. But because there's all these Trek fans out there, we get these amazing people. And when we had David Diggs, and then I think there's something very interesting about Tysus. Tysus is Janeway's new number one. And her emotions to her former number one are complicated. So we kind of deepened it. There was a backstory between how she talked Tysus off the ledge at one point, because I think Andorian, they're a little bit Vulcan, but they're also emotional, or they're like emotional Vulcans, or they can get passionate about fighting and I'm going a little bit mind-blank, but the culture of the Andorians. So we felt like there's some deep well back there between their relationship.
2: And I think Tysus is half Vulcan as well?
0: No, no, he's all Andorian.
2: Oh, he's, he's all Andorian, okay. He's all Andorian. That was reported somewhere.
0: No, I think he comes across as Vulcan just mm-hmm. because he's such a buttoned-up Andorian.
2: Ah, uh, see, okay, so great to acknowledge flaws of characters because you, you sometimes find out when they bring characters back is there's these like monolithic, perfect examples of who to aspire to be. But Janeway, well, she flew by the seat of her pants for seven years, so she's really not used to stepping back and towing the line a bit. So it's interesting to see her taking orders for a change.
1: Yeah, we got to have a lot of fun with her character in season one, with the body switch, having hologram Janeway, having Vice Admiral Janeway. And I have to just throw out that in season two, we're going to do even more with her. And it's such a delight what we're going to be doing with her character. In
2: terms of your casting, you must have been delighted when John Noble was going to be the diviner.
1: Yeah, we really didn't know who to get. And then Alex Kurtzman, who has a history with John from the TV show Fringe, and maybe also Sleepy Hollow or something, he's worked with John a few times. He's like, what if we got John? We're like, oh, he would be perfect. Gosh, he's fantastic.
0: And I think the only thing we had on the call sheet or the only... Template, we said Ricardo Montalban. We want someone who's passionate. Again, that's a We wanted dripping with emotion.
1: Yes, revenge seeking passionate villain. And then we can counter that villain with dreadnought, who is the really creepy sidekick.
0: Amazingly played by Jimmy Simpson.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Played wonderfully by Jimmy Simpson and someone that kids could really fear. We feel like Dreadnought is a good villain for kids to easily fear and understand that's a bad guy. And then for adults, a more sophisticated villain that's got a really interesting story.
2: And then Jamila Jamila is your stealth villain later in the season.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. She's fantastic. She's awesome.
0: I remember we had to do, I think it was New York Comic Con and it wasn't revealed of what her character was. And so everyone's like, so you're playing an Ensign. I don't know what to make of <laughs> that character. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I thought it was really well-threaded, actually, because I started noticing something suspicious about her, just about how interested she was in the Diviner and so on. She just seemed to be a little too interested, and that was really good clue as exactly. to there's something more here. But it wasn't too much of a clue, so it's maybe something that people will look back at the season and be like, oh yeah, there she is. She's yeah, obviously probably. up to something.
1: Yeah, exactly. You can never do it perfectly for every single person, but I feel like we, we did the balancing act pretty well for most people. I think they were tricked.
0: And
2: I'm guessing she'll be back in season two.
1: It
0: was tough, too. I remember right when we had recorded her, her original name was Ensign Vesria, and she was Vesria. But someone in casting had sent out a call sheet that said, Vesria, she is a secret intruder agent on the ship who is a bad guy, and someone had gotten wind of that, we're like, oh, crap, they're going to know who she is right off the bat, so we changed her name. Had to re-record all of her lines. Darn you, truck fans.
2: <laughs> wonder if Jane was thinking, it's Seska all over again. In terms of the video game, when did that come into the mix? It's in between the hiatus, It's uh, isn't it? Post-hiatus picks up right after the events of the game. I haven't actually finished the game yet, although I've started it, but do you just consider that a lost episode?
1: Yeah, that's how we treated it. It was years, it takes years to make a game. So I think this was very early on when we are writing season one. And we felt like that time period after episode 10 and before episode 11, there's some time has passed and they're doing good deeds and they're flying closer to Federation space. So we're like, this is a perfect playground for the video game to play in.
2: It's good fun. I got it on the PS5. I just haven't had the chance to finish it yet. I think I'm due to pick up Zero next.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. We built in another one in episode 20. They were on that tiny little shuttle for a month getting to Starfleet. What happened in that time? Things you can only imagine. Well, I was thinking is, I hope there's a toilet in that shuttle. I know. I don't know if they had time to build that.
1: Yeah. That's a number one pressing question I keep seeing everyone raise. Is there a toilet on that thing? (laughs) They use Murph in a container.
2: It's the pressing question in Star Trek in general, because they always forget to put the bathrooms on the blueprints of the Enterprise and so on. (laughs)
1: I saw someone comment that in our episode, Preludes, I think we showed one of the first toilets in Star Trek yeah, And it's ever. not working. <laughs> really? Is that the fresh territory that we get to tread? As <laughs> bathrooms? That'd be a great comment.
2: Well, there's one in the brig in Star Trek Five. I think that might be the first one.
1: Is there? Okay. I love that people like you know this. <laughs> yeah. I, love, I love it. I'm so impressed.
2: <laughs> I think I know more about Star Trek than I do about the real world. I don't know what that says. About
1: yeah. you. <laughs> I love it.
2: (laughs) But it's a better world than the real world.
0: Yes, it is. I always look at it as like Tolkien. It feels like Lord of the Rings. Some people who just love everything about Lord of the Rings, this is just the same thing but sci-fi.
2: Yeah. Thinking back to when we're talking about the conversations you might have with other production teams, there's one specific thing that stood out. You get it at the end of the season where Dal is genetically engineered and that's supposed to be a barrier to entry at Starfleet. And you actually have a similar situation in Picard where... Seven's not allowed in because she's former Borg, and it's Janeway arguing for them in both instances. So is that a conversation that was ever had, or was it just you guys decided we're going to get Janeway to talk dial
0: in? I don't think we ever had the conversation about Janeway and Seven or any relation to that, but that's always something we knew, that they're going to lose hologram Janeway. I think the augment thing wasn't baked in. In the initial pitch, the Janeway was, but we really kind of left it up to the room saying, what should Dal's origins be? I don't even think he was originally an augment. All we knew he was in a Petri dish. And then it became this very interesting if he's an augment because it brings up all these difficult things. Like the one place he wants to go is the one place that actually doesn't want him, which is very not Starfleet.
1: How great of story conflict is that? That's amazing. We jumped onto that.
0: I remember discussions of, is Dal a chimera or is he a augment? I think the rule thing was we had to make sure that he was part human DNA, which I still don't quite understand. Because why can't there be an augment of all different alien DNA where apparently augmented human DNA?
1: Because it's from the history of the augmented humans and how they became more superior and The wars that happened on Earth.
0: But still, if there was an alien that became superior by augmenting their DNA, wouldn't that also be an augment? I don't know. That's a conversation.
2: Well, they pick that up in Strange New Worlds because you have the Una number one character. She's an augmented Illyrian and she's presumably, at least for a while, not allowed in. They'll pick that up in season two, but it's there. And it's interesting that it's a subject that keeps coming up in different Star Trek things. You've covered it in Prodigy to some degree and Strange New Worlds has covered it and it's in Picard as well. So yeah. It seems to be this hot button issue that someone is eventually going to push the button on fully exploring.
0: There was a moment where we're like, oh my gosh, are we going to create Federation law in the Prodigy room? And we're <laughs> like, no, 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 let's just find a workaround. We'll let Terry Metalis do that or something.
2: Dal's an exception. We'll leave it at yeah. that for now. Is there anything you can tell us about season two? I know it's early days and someone might assassinate you for revealing too much but i have to ask
0: the question (laughs) i mean it felt very organically bored after season one
1: yeah i think if you boil down season one dan and i will always say it's a story about a bunch of kids who steal a ship in the most simplest way and we felt like well what's season two because there's so much story that still needs to unravel and resolve and we realized season two it's about a bunch of kids who earn a ship. And what does that look like? What does it take? Yeah, all we can say is season two is going to really feel like the next chapter. It's going to have a lot of new ingredients in there because they're not starting off in the Delta Quadrant this time. They're starting off right there at Starfleet. It feels like a reset, yeah. It feels like a really fun reset. There's so much new stuff. But also, it's going to be the continuation of what Gwyn and Solemn Jane Wayne Chakotay. There's so many open, loose threads. There are fathers out there, a version of her fathers out there. There's Chakotay still out there and, and where he is, future Solemn. So there's so much. I think what's just so interesting is
0: that there's a lot of answers that exist on Solemn today and also 52 years from now. Yeah. So there's going to be some Solemn.
2: I'm wondering if the Vindicator is going to be stirring up trouble before Gwen gets there and make it... Difficult for Gwen to convince them that the Federation are good.
1: Well, we know that she's out there, right? She's floating out there in space somewhere. Superman 2 did it, right? Superman 2, they had the villains (laughs) break out of their little prison mirror.
2: I loved when Gwen got her title, the Unifier. I thought that was a perfect summation of her journey, just getting to that point where she's going to be out there trying to make things right. Possibly most interested in what's going to happen with her next season, especially since she's off on her own, and she's going to be meeting her people for the first time, in theory, and, and all that stuff.
0: I would love if Lord Dex, because there's like a hundred bounded caught, went through that wormhole, and to come up with a hundred names that all end with, whatever, the Excavator. The Diviner. <laughs> yeah, the Vindicator. the low-rent title. The <laughs> The Labor. Well,
2: I suppose they could turn up anywhere, couldn't they? They could turn up anywhere at any time. Yeah, they could. Turn up
0: in Strange New Worlds.
1: Yeah, they could. <laughs> Someone comes up fresh off the ship. It'll be really fun if at some point if one of the live action shows has a, a Valna Vana'cot person on their ship or something. It's pretty awesome.
2: And you've cleverly changed the dynamic without changing it too much, so it's still roughly the same. But there's kind of yeah, slightly. yeah, yeah. It's still the kids with Janeway, but it's the real Janeway instead of the hollow Janeway, and
0: still mentoring. It's a tougher mentor. She's not going to like their shenanigans.
1: And it's keeping that. It's very serialized, yet also. We always try to find, whenever we have room, to be able to throw in a really fun Trek concept in there for an episode. We're not changing the formula, I don't think, in any way.
2: And has the decision been made on what the ship will be for the next season?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. We can't say. It was
0: one thing, and then it got turned into something else. That's all I can say.
2: There's a lot of theories flying around.
1: There's a lot of cool ships out there still to play with. A lot of ships in season two.
2: But yeah, season two, I'm really looking forward to it, and I feel like I need it next week. I need to see it really soon.
1: I know everyone keeps asking for it. I'm like, give us a break. We just delivered one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're hard to make. They take a lot of time. It's, it's
1: still so early. We don't have a green light for a season three yet. We're eagerly waiting and hoping because season one just finally finished coming out. So they're going to look at the numbers and hopefully the viewership numbers are healthy and it warrants a season three. But it would be our dream for the show to keep going. I would love to see a live action version of this show. I would love to see an animated theatrical movie of the show. I would hope if people enjoy it enough and we get enough viewers we'll have a lot of prodigy for years to come
2: well i really hope so i don't exaggerate when i say it's my favorite of the modern star trek shows it presses a lot of buttons that i really want pressed i I do love it
1: thank you you. And, and we're so fortunate that the shows are also different some people are like when lower decks first came out oh you're doing another animated trek show i'm like don't worry it's so different it's really hard to even compare. Lower deck star show they're just drastically different animals and same with the live action shows I feel really fortunate about that because I never feel like oh boy some other show is really treading on our ground I'm like no we're all appreciative of what everyone's creating and bringing
2: definitely I hope for many more seasons of Prodigy to come and possibly more video games and All sorts of content that I
1: can absorb. We'll get some toys in the new year, but man, I want more. March and April, I believe they're coming
0: out.
2: Sell those Gwen action figures.
1: Yeah. Yes. Get those Gwens first.
2: You'll need to really use the vehicle replicator in season two to build loads of shuttles and things that you can sell off as toys.
0: Yes. Yeah. We talked about that, actually having like
1: a 3D printing machine to have a 3D replica. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Make a Star Trek one. That'd be awesome yeah absolutely vehicle replicator him
2: so as a last question it's one i always ask because the podcast is nerdy genre related stuff is what superpower would you have if you could have any superpower and why
0: i think for me quicksilver's the speed flash or quicksilver i think to get a lot of stuff done very quickly and then to be able to chill out i think would be great
1: oh my gosh well not going for the easy low-hanging fruit of strength and visibility is a little creepy i would have to say i don't know this might sound weird but the ability to build a change your appearance would be kind of interesting and wild walking someone else's shoes yeah mystique walking other people's shoes doing mystique thing would be really really cool
2: sneak into meetings that you're not supposed to be in
1: yeah 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 you could do a lot with mystique yeah how about you craig what's yours
2: for me it would be speed as well Oh. I'd still like to see things, but I also want to get there quickly.
1: Well, what about the ability to slow or stop time?
2: That's the same thing. It's almost the same thing, but I don't know. Speed just appeals in terms of what you can what you can do.
1: Stopping time opens up a lot of opportunities to save others or protect the world.
2: But if I run fast enough then I'm basically stopping
1: time. Yeah, but you'll be out of breath, guys. It's kind <laughs> of... <laughs> No, you can't, Kevin. You've seen Quicksilver. Stop bullets. Easy. <laughs> on, yeah, you're not tired.
2: Although your brain would work at that speed, so it would just always feel like it takes you forever to do stuff.
0: Okay, so Craig, let's say Kevin is a supervillain. How would we use our speed to destroy a shapeshifter? Well,
1: that seems easy. Well, you find them first,
2: yeah. and then you put them in prison before they even know. But
1: how do you when them? you find me, then I'm dead meat.
2: Finding is a challenge.
1: Dan, you should have said you're like Danimal and you can become whatever animal you want to become. He's like Manimal? Man. Or what was that old TV show? <laughs> the Danimal? That'd be a good one. Pine of yogurt, eight ounce yogurt. <laughs> the ability to, to what? Turn into inanimate objects?
0: Yeah, the water twins. Someone gets to turn into a big beast and the other person is like,
1: I oh, will be in a pool of water. No, but they somehow had the ability to turn into a bucket of water. Another sibling was like the hawk and would fly the bucket of water to put out the fire.
0: Who was the animal? Was the boy the animal?
2: I think the boy was the animals, and then the girl was the element.
1: Was it all elements or just water?
2: I think she could become various elements. She could be a form of
1: fog or the fire or just water elements.
2: I'm not sure. I haven't read too much of the Wonder Twins, but I think she could do all sorts of things. Is
1: Wonder Twins DC or Marvel? DC. Yeah, they need to make a movie. Where's our Wonder Twin movie? I know.
2: you'll need to ask James Gunn about that.
1: We'll do it. We'll do it, James Gunn. All right, we'll do it.
2: Yeah, why not? I'm sure it was a project that got cancelled, actually. I'm pretty sure that there was casting and things.
1: There was a time years ago where we sat down with Kevin Feige before he was the head of Marvel. He was just a younger executive there. And we were developing Power Pack. It's about a bunch of kids who... Also Doctor Strange. Yeah, get superhuman powers. And Marvel still hasn't made that movie, so... I don't know. I might have to call them tomorrow. (laughs) That would be fun.
2: The next special presentation on Disney+. Plus. Yeah,
1: yeah. Here's Marvel. Yeah.
0: Here's DC for (laughs) Wonder Twins. Here's Marvel for Power Pack.
2: Yeah, so Kevin Feige or James Gunn, if you're listening. Yeah, he's
1: listening to your podcast, right, Craig? Of course. Neil before Kevin, yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Good answers on the powers thing. It's always a fun discussion. It's a good way to see how people's brains work in terms of what powers they want and things. Yeah. That's why I like to ask it.
0: Or I feel like they've got to be practical. Like, how would I use this flying? I'm like, I don't know. Flying's not going to give me nothing.
2: Like, <laughs> save you a fortune on airfare.
0: Teleportation could be good, but that's like quicksilver. Yeah.
2: Teleportation it takes out all the fun stuff because you don't see anything when you're traveling. You're just there immediately.
0: Yeah, but after you've done it a thousand times, would you be like, okay, I've seen that before. Yeah, I don't know.
1: And then, what? you know, we have families, so all right, kids, wife, get in the car. I'll see you off of the mountain in three hours, and I'll just. Flip there and then they just have to drive themselves or if i drive with them then it'd be just be like mind-numbing because you have this ability <laughs> to get there and you're doing a three and a half hour drive with them
0: it'll be like rock and time of muck where you've lived for too long kevin too long
2: <laughs> in the flash tv show he's always taking people with them he'll carry them or hold hands with them and they run oh
0: okay up. he can do that yeah, but does he have super arm strength? Because wouldn't that get tiring for a little bit? <laughs> someone?
2: It's not something they ever address. The physics of these things often goes out yeah. the window.
0: Only be friends with people who weigh under 100 pounds. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who are strong enough to carry for three hours on a run. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if, thanks very much for your time. It's been great chatting to you about Prodigy, and I hope we'll get the chance to do so again after season two, perhaps.
1: Yeah. That
0: was great. Yes, thank
1: you there. Yeah. Thank you. I think there's some good little tidbits in there for any young aspiring writers who listen to your podcast.
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's plenty of great content. So thanks very much for being so open with your answers on various things. It was really great getting an insight into the workings of the show.
1: We really appreciate all the support from you and everyone who's been enjoying the show. It just means everything to us.
2: Well, thanks for making such a great show. Thanks for respecting the franchise and honoring its current iteration.
1: Thank you. We're doing our best.
2: And that's all that anyone can ask.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Greg.
2: That was my interview with Kevin and Dan Hageman. I wish them the very best for season two and all future projects. If you like what you heard, then please do hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. We'd also love if you could leave us a five-star rating and a review. If you want to discuss the interview, Star Trek in general, or anything else, you can contact us on Twitter or Facebook under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. For more interviews, a monthly news podcast and deep dive analytical discussions about your favourite nerdy things, join us on Neil Before Pod.